Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Lord's Day. We thank you for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you uh, pulled the veil uh, off of our eyes, the scales from our eyes, and you have given us a heart of flesh. And Father, we pray that as we think upon you this morning, as we give all of our time this morning to uh, studying you and um, receiving from you, that our hearts would be lifted up and that we would be encouraged in our faith, that we would uh, meet any challenges that you uh, put before us in the coming week with faith. Uh, Father, for um, we desire to uh, walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. So help us, feed us again, strengthen us, guide this class, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so today our topic is a woman named Katerina. Katerina von Bora, or Katerina Luther, as she would later be named. So Katerina von Bora was Martin Luther's wife down the road, and we're pretty much going to get to the point where they're married, and then I'm going to leave, leave off for you to go do your own research at that point. So um, Katerina uh, von Bora was born, we believe, on January 29th, 1499. And the, the reason we believe that is because one of her early biographers claimed that she wore a medal around her neck, which was a gift from, from Martin, inscribed in Latin with Dr. Martin Luther gave the symbol to Katerina, who was born on the 29th of January in the year 1499. It had a bronze serpent on one side. It had Christ on the cross on the other side. And uh, we don't have that piece, but one of the early biographies mentions it. So that's why we think the 29th. Um, between her birth and her arrival at the convent in, that she went to, a convent school in Brenna, uh, we know nothing of her life. Of course, that wasn't very much life before she got dumped off at the convent. Her father, Hans von Bora, was a member of the landed gentry. So they owned land. They were considered to be nobility, uh, though they were house poor. I mean, they did not have much other than the title. He was a gentleman farmer, but he was deeply in debt. Because of that debt... And because of ongoing agricultural difficulties during that time period, those years especially, um, Katerina's father brought her to a Benedictine convent at the age of six, shortly after her mother died in 1505. So here's this six-year-old little girl dropped off at a convent right after her mom dies. You can imagine that she was a, a little bit fearful. She would be there at that Benedictine convent for four years, though in this and another convent, she would spend the next 18 years. So from six to the age of 24, she was in a convent. 
This allowed her to be educated. That was one of the positives of, of being dropped off at a convent. You would get an education, especially as a woman, you would get an education. And the, the Benedictines were known for their high-caliber curriculum, and it attracted the daughters of nobility who were there to be groomed to be noblemen's wives. Uh, she would have been schooled in reading, in writing, Latin, German, arithmetic, morals, manners, and religion. That's, that's the education she would have received. Now, when she was 10, so she had been in that Benedictine convent for four years. When she was 10, her father moved her to a Cistercian, how do I say that? Cistercian convent in Nibshin so that she could become a nun. Okay, so the goal of that was not just this education, the goal of that was to become a nun, uh, which would have kept her in the convent, right, for the rest of her life. That's, that would have been what she did till death. Why? Why did her father do this? What's the reason for everything? Money. Money. Money, of course. Many young women had their future determined for them by their parents or guardians simply because it was cheaper for a daughter to become a nun than to be betrothed to a man in a particular social stratum, right? The entrance fee to a convent, which interestingly enough was called the cloister dowry, was marked markedly lower than the dowry needed to attract a husband of her, of Katerina's social order. So her husband was doing this cost-benefit analysis and he's like, it's going to be cheaper uh, for you to become a bride of Jesus than for you to become a bride of some noble nobleman. And so the move came um, because the Nibshin, Nibshin that, that Stairson uh, uh, convent there was particularly cheap and very spartan. Cistercians were committed to these things. They were committed to poverty. They were committed to simplicity. They were committed to isolation. They were committed to silence. And they were committed to chastity. Those were, were the five things that they were committed to. I mean, think about those things. Poverty, simplicity, isolation, Silence in chastity. Well, not fully. Right? That, all those things are good, but, but pushed to an extreme where they become a legalistic bondage, that's terrible. And I agree with you there. Sometimes I want to be alone and quiet and simple and poor and chaste. You know, sometimes I do desire that, but <laughs> especially silence and isolation. But um, <clears throat> yeah, sure. If I, I might know it, I might not. Yeah, I know. That's good. Yeah. She becomes a 
Well, she spent, she spent 14 years there and she had no disciplinary marks at all. She was a good nun, a good student. She had no disciplinary marks. They, one, of the, one of the things I was reading said sleep, like food, was regarded as a physical need and self-deprivation was a mark of holiness, showing one's mastery over the senses. And so sleep was sort of like, that's a physical thing. You need to deprive yourself of that physical thing. So they even tried to limit their sleep. They did not talk to one another in this convent. They, they didn't speak to one another. They were committed to silence. Now, there, were prob- there was probably a, a sign language and looks that began to take on their own language between the women in the convent, but they were committed to silence. There would not be out loud speaking. Um, the, this was a life of asceticism and harsh treatment of the body. It was their form of godliness. Right? She would be required to rise before dawn, and that habit stuck with her even after she married uh, Martin Luther, uh, who for that reason called her the morning star of Wittenberg. She was always up before anybody else was. That was something that she took with her from the convent. She was officially consecrated as a nun in 1515 at the age of 16. In the 14 years she was there, no reprimands were recorded in the books. She said of herself during this time she prayed feverishly, diligently, and frequently, which reminds you of of Luther himself. Now, think about this, that simultaneously Luther Luther is, you know, pursuing his own works, in the monastery, right? Probably not quite yet, um, or maybe maybe he is. Yeah, he's older, so he's he may be simultaneously going through all the the trouble that he went through um, in the monastery. You remember uh, Luther would would pray uh, and and scream at the devil and be afflicted by the devil, and then go into his his uh, abbot and confess his sins for three, four, five hours at a time trying to get rid of all of his sins by this absolution that the abbot could offer to him. Anyway, so she's, she's kind of cut of the same cloth, feverish, diligent, frequent prayer. Uh, Katerina was 24 years old, and things changed. She escaped from the convent at 24. No indication that there was any trouble up to this point, but at 24 we find out that she got out of Dodge. She left that convent. She fled in the middle of the night under cover of darkness by means of an elaborate plan. We don't know, uh, we don't know if this happened, but most theologians speculate that Martin Luther's writings made it into the convent. And they were hearing the news of what was happening, right? What, what was happening culturally. They're hearing the news of, of this reformation and this call for convents and monasteries to be closed down. And perhaps it made it into that cloister, but remember, they were cut off. They, people did not come in for visits. This was, they were isolated. They did not talk to one another. It would have been hard for them to get news, but somebody had to drop off food. 
And they may just have snuck some Luther and some scripture in through those, you know, barrels of potatoes. And Katerina may have read them. Now, um, here, again, back to Luther. So I'm going to be jumping back and forth. Here's a section from a book that um, is called Katerina and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and a Renegade Monk. Um, Baker, Baker published it. Here, here's what uh, the author says. Luther's 10 months in Wartburg Castle. Okay, remember that time period? Wartburg Castle, this is 1520s, early 1520s. Right? He's published the 95 Theses and he's a marked man and he goes to the castle and has to uh, um, chill out and uh, be hidden. So he's in the Wartburg Castle and she, uh, the author writes, Our, uh, Luther's 10 months there are often recalled as the period in which he launched his most prodigious literary achievement, the translation of the Bible into German. But he also wrote a lesser known work in that small room perched high above Eisenach a treatise that would radically impact Katerina, who is living her own cloistered existence less than 150 miles away. Luther's Judgment on Monastic Vows, published in Wittenberg in 1522, is not his most famous Reformation work. Perhaps it is the text that most profoundly influenced his wife. In it, Luther specifically attacked the vows of chastity, the vows of poverty, and the avows of obedience that nuns and monks made upon entry into the cloistered life. He argued that these vows were not based in Scripture and were opposed to grace-based salvation. In, in Luther's opinion, the vows smacked of a works-based understanding of salvation. I wouldn't say they just smacked of a works-based. I would say that they were <laughs> lock, stock, and barrel works-based righteousness. Uh, Christian, um, the, uh, this is a quote from that work. They teach that this kind of life and all that goes to make it up is the good life. And that by practicing it, men become good and are saved, Luther wrote. This is sacrilege, godlessness, and blasphemy. It is lies they have trumped up. It is delusion, hypocrisy, and satanic invention. The... the uh, reading more from that, that book, the vow of chastity especially irritated Luther, which is the, all of the reformers at some point go ballistic against the vows of chastity. They just, Calvin does, Luther does, any of the early reformers are going to just annihilate this vow of chastity. Um, he stated that only one in 1,000 could truly and joyfully live a celibate life without any impure thoughts or actions. Later, he changed that estimate to one in 100,000. <laughs> uh, women, including nuns, he argued, were, excluded, were not excluded from temptations of the flesh. Unless she is in a high and unusual state of grace, he wrote, a young woman can do without a man as little as she can do without eating, drinking, sleeping, or other natural requirements. Nor can a man do without a woman. The reason for this is that to conceive children is as deeply implanted in nature as eating and drinking are. It's 
He doesn't say the desire to gratify your lusts, which is part of the blessing of marriage. What does he first mention? He mentions fruitfulness. It is in the desire of man to have children. Conceived children is deeply implanted in nature. Now, everything you've been taught by our culture is this is uh, not a part of nature, and it's something you should try to suppress, and it's terrible, right? Suppress that. And so for us to read that is, is rather instructive. He goes on, the person who wants to prevent this and keep nature from doing what it wants to do and must do is simply preventing nature from being nature, fire from burning, water from wetting, and man from eating, drinking, or sleeping. Luther believed that with the exception of rare cases, either men, neither men nor women could keep a vow of chastity. They might succeed at honoring the vow in body, but they certainly couldn't succeed in thought. Duh. I mean, come on. Now, it's during this period, so, so here's, here's Luther up in the Wartburg Castle translating the Bible into German. He's writing this uh, screed against the, the monastic vows. And Katerina is realizing that the life she lived was a fake. She's coming, the, the light bulbs are turning on for him. Some of the, the nuns in the cloister decided to pen a letter to Luther himself. Um, Leonard Kopp, a Torgau merchant who delivered fish to the convent, took this letter to Wittenberg. I imagine he was the same dude that may have brought readings into the, the convent. He, he was connected with Luther. Luther read their plea, this, this letter from these these nuns, he reads their plea and vowed to aid their escape. That's what Luther said. I will get you out of there. I'm going to come for you. And he said, he said this, For God is not pleased um, with a worship unless it comes freely from the heart. And consequently, no vow is valid unless it has been made willingly and with love. Right. She didn't make a willing vow. She was dropped off at the age of six by her father. Right. That was not the vow that she had made. How the plan worked out, we don't know. We don't know exactly how, how they pulled off this, this rescue team, this, this SEAL's entry into the, the convent grounds. Right. But on April 4th, 1523, here's what we some of the things we know or speculate. The nuns celebrated Easter Eve. I think that's a great idea. They celebrated Easter Eve, gathered in the church for the Easter vigil service, went out into the courtyard afterwards where they, pass, where they passed around this paschal candle. Um, then they went to bed, and then a sharp sound like a crack of a whip woke up the nuns who were in on this plan, and they got dressed very quickly. They fled their cells. They somehow made it over these walls, right, these, these stone walls, and went out to some wagons that were waiting for them. And somewhere between nine and 12 nuns left, including Katerina. And they made it by morning to Torgau, which is where this fishmonger uh, lived. 
Once in Torgau, they changed into less conspicuous clothing, right? They got on secular dresses rather than the nun's habit. Monday after Easter, they traveled then 31 miles up to Wittenberg. And the wagon pulled up right to Martin Luther's door. The, he, he, he lived, in, in Wittenberg, he lived in the, uh, it was called the Black Cloister because it's where the Augustinian monks had lived. And once they were kicked out, he took over that space and lived in it. Um, and so, so here, here's Luther. He comes out of his door. There's a wagon with 12 nuns sitting there, and reality strikes him. He's, he's like, um, these women are unemployable and at that point not able to be married. What, is he, what are they supposed to do to care for themselves? They're unemployable because they're, they're the daughters of nobility and they don't work. They don't just take up a, a job as a washerwoman, right? And so it's just a really terrible situation. The only thing that could happen is, are two things. Their families take them back and care for them, or they get married. But the marriage thing, I mean, Luther's still like grappling with the whole concept of nuns and monks being married. Right? So if the families didn't take them back, it became a very difficult case. Weeks later, Luther wrote to his friend George Spalatin, he said this, I ask that you too would do a work of love and beg for some money from among the rich courtiers for me, and perhaps give some yourself, so I can get food for the refugees for at least eight or 14 days and also some dresses since they have no shoes or clothing. So he starts, he's got a fundraise now. He's got a problem on his hand. He's got missions work to do. So he starts sending out letters asking for funds. Luther now took it upon himself. He said, well, there's nothing else I can do. He, he took it upon himself to become a matchmaker for these women. Writing letters to potential suitors. Martin Luther is writing letters to set men and women up. Katerina found a suitor. His name was, oh, I'm never going to get this, Hieronymus Baumgartner. I mean, he's already obnoxious with that kind of name. You just know he's obnoxious. Hieronymus Baumgartner of Nuremberg. They really loved one another. They really loved one another. They fell in love. He visited Katerina in, uh, in Wittenberg, then left to travel back to Nuremberg. They did this several times, and then one time he comes, stays, uh, stays in Wittenberg. They... They love one another. He travels back to Nuremberg. Everyone expected him to return and take her to be his wife. But months passed and nothing happened. Luther even wrote to Baumgartner on October 1524. He said, if you intend marrying Catherine von Bora, make haste before she is given to someone else. She has not yet got over her love for you. I wish that you two were married. Well, Baumgartner did not reply until the spring of 1525. That would be about six months later. He let Luther and Katerina know that he was engaged to a 14-year-old girl 
with a sizable dowry. <laughs> Scoundrel. Right? Yeah, exactly. Katerina, so that puts Katerina in a really terrible situation because she's been on the market, right? And she was off the market, and now she's back on the market, and all the others, uh, perhaps suitable suitors have been found. So Katerina goes and lives with Luther's printer, a guy named Cranach, who made, and Cranach was wealthy because he was publishing Luther's books, and he made quite a bit of money off of publishing that German Bible. Uh, those were selling like hotcakes. Uh, it was not um, two years after, so we're, we're two years after her escape at this point. All the other women who left with her had either been married or returned to their families. She alone is the, the one left. Luther tried one more matchmaking for Katerina, a pastor of the church in Orlamunde, Caspar Glatz. But Katerina did not like him at all, right? She heard that he was stubborn and miserly, and she wanted nothing to do with him. He was later removed as the pastor of his church because uh, he argued and fought continually with his church members. <laughs> oh, man. Now my thoughts are having thoughts. Um, it appeared she was out of options at this point. I mean, he had tried... Um, so she, Katerina, asked both Luther and von Amsdorf, another theologian and reformer, if one of them would marry her. <laughs> she goes to them and says, Luther or von Amsdorf, one of you should marry me. She put it to them. She didn't care which one. She didn't, she didn't have any preference. She just didn't care which one. The year before, Luther had written to Spalatin about himself, according to my present frame of mind, I have no intention of marrying. Not that I am insensible to the emotions of the flesh, being neither, being neither wood nor stone, but because I have no desire to and daily expect to die a heretic's death. He, just, he, he thought he was dead. He was a marked man. He thought he was going to die soon. And so to get married did not seem wise to him. Um, when Luther learned of Katerina's refusal to marry this Casper uh, guy, he was infuriated. Um, he thought that this Katerina girl was a snob, right? Oh, you know, can't settle for the, the guy who's a little tight with his money. I mean, get over it, former, you know, nun. I mean, you just let, led an aesthetic life for the past 18 years. But perhaps that's what made her so insistent on that her husband is not going to be miserly. So anyway, a lot, of, uh, a lot of thoughts going on there. Von Amsdorf wrote to Luther. This is the, one of the two guys, right? He writes to Luther and says, What the devil are you doing trying to coax and force the good Kate to marry that old cheapskate whom she neither desires nor considers with all her heart as husband? So she's ta he's taking her side. Luther's on the other side, like, you, you snob. Um, and then Luther writes back to von Amsdorf. He says, What devil would want to have her then? If she does not like him, she may have to wait a good while for another one. So they're going back and forth. Now, 
um, how did he change his mind about Katerina? We know they're married. I mean, we, we know that's... How did he change his mind? Two factors. He visited his father, and his father urged him to produce a grandson for him. That's wild. Secondly, he's quoting Calvin, I did this to silence the evil mouths which are so used to complaining about me, for I still hope to live for a little while. Right? He's like, he put his fears to death. I mean, at first he was like, I'm gonna be, I'm a, I've been deemed a heretic, I'm going to be burned at the stake and it's imminent. Now, now he's of the mind of, well, forget you, heretics. I'm going to lead the life that the Lord gives me and it may be many years. And indeed it was many years that the Lord gave to him. And so he wanted to be an example of what he is advocating for. He also said this to Katerina. I feel neither passionate love nor burning for my spouse, but I cherish her. And later he would write, if, um, if I had wanted to get married 13 years ago, I would have chosen Eva Schoenfeld. <laughs> High school sweetheart or whatever, I don't know. Luther, this is what he's, he's writing. If I had wanted to get married 13 years ago, I would have chosen Eva Schoenfeld. I didn't love my Kate at that time, for I regarded her with mistrust as someone proud and arrogant. But it pleased God who wanted me to take pity on her. He felt a duty in this, right? Again, don't furrow your brows, 18-year-old girls. Think of the context. They're coming out of monasteries and vows of chastity and convents where they can't even speak to one another. Talk about socially inept, right? They, they, had, been, uh, they had been living these lives of being socially inept, and the whole concept of the clergy being married was new at this point, though all over the Bible. Um, you know, and so that, and the whole idea that marriage is only to be contracted on romance and romantic love is a rather 20th, 21st century concept, okay? Well, I mean, it scandalizes us to think that there have been arranged marriages. It scandalizes us that, that, that Luther would marry Catherine because he felt pity for her and he wanted to care for her. But this is most of the ages and most marriages through time, okay? And wonderfully, they loved one another. And God gave them the gift of that, uh, that love for one another and cherishing one another. So it's tempting to romanticize um, relationships. But, I mean, equally on the other side, it is hard for us to wrap our heads around that. I, I understand that. Yeah. If you, if you think about what the Bible says about love, it's, it's all about loving people, loving our enemies, loving people that are difficult to love. It's all about loving. It's not about feelings.
They can be helpful to one another. Yeah. But it's, I mean, that is definitely true. And yet, when I do premarital counseling, if I see a couple who aren't just like dopey, committed to one another, I get nervous, right? I get very nervous because, you know, what are you, disembodied brains? What are you, a machine? Are there no affections here? Is there no, like, lust for one another? What's your problem? You know, I'm... <laughs> Um, and so I get, I get very um, nervous in that situation. But on the other hand, love between a husband and wife develops and becomes something that it was not at first, right? The dependency, the, the help, the uh, shared experience that you go through. And you look back on your, your dating and you're like, we didn't know one another at all. We had certain impassioned feelings for one another, but I didn't know this, this girl whose pigtails were on my pillow next to me, which is what Luther's going to say later. Anyway, um, here's, what, here's what the, uh, again, from this marriage of a runaway nun and renegade monk. Here's another quote. It's tempting to romanticize Luther and Katerina's relationship, but the truth is romantic love wasn't part of the picture, at least not at the outset. Katerina married Luther because she was the most promising out of a very limited number of options. Luther married Katerina out of his love for Christ, a love that flowed naturally out of his faith toward the person in his midst who was most in need of compassion. Katerina was Luther's good work. Marrying her was an act of Luther's discipline, love, and service born in the name of Christ. What he couldn't possibly see at the time, however, was that his obedience would produce fruit beyond his wildest expectations. So, Katerina gets Luther. And they are married on a Tuesday evening in Wittenberg, June 23, 1525. Five guests are present, plus the bride and groom, at Luther's place they're married in the living room, and they recited vows, they exchanged rings, they were pronounced husband and wife by uh, another pastor named Bugenhagen. Now, now check this out. This will freak all of us out. In late medieval unions, the bride typically brought her own bed often handed down from mother to daughter to the marriage, along with feather quilts, pillows, and embroidered linens as part of her tr trousseau. But Katerina owned nothing of her own and thus came to her marriage virtually empty-handed. Instead, she and Luther retired to his bed, which Luther later admitted was basically a pile of dirty straw that hadn't been changed out in a year. That said... Rancid straw was probably the least of Katerina's concerns that night. Although Protestant reforms had altered the format of weddings, consummation was still considered an important and required part of the matrimonial ritual. And so, as was the German tradition of the time, the newlyweds consummated their marriage while Justice Jonas, Justice is his first name, not like he's not a justice of the peace, 
Justice Jonas witnessed the event from the doorway of the bedchamber. Awkward. But, okay, how could I possibly get an application or defend that? Um, I don't want to defend... Uh, I don't want to defend the practice, but I want to defend the concept that, an un, that if you go through your wedding service and do not consummate your marriage, you are unmarried. Okay? That is the last part of the matrimonial service. And um, if, we, if we have, as elders, heard that you went on your honeymoon, did not consummate your relationship, we would go into, okay, we got to do something about this. We got to figure this out. Why did that not happen? What's going on here? And if it isn't going to happen, then this marriage never really happened. And so the concept is still in order, although I, I don't want to witness it, you know. Um, I mean, I, maybe there's a way that that could be modestly done. I have no idea, but even, even hearing, I mean, yeah. Anyway, that was their, so that was their private wedding, which was typical, but then two weeks later, they had a church wedding. Um, two weeks later, they had a church wedding. Uh, it's called their Kirschgong uh, church ceremony, and they feasted afterwards. Though Luther was poor, he requested that a few of his guests bring some venison and barrels of beer. Um, no one from Katerina's family attended. Uh, to a friend, Luther would write, Suddenly, unexpectedly, and while my mind was on other matters, the Lord snared me with the yoke of marriage. <laughs> uh, which is, I think, what most men feel like. If they're working. Men, part of their identity is set in their work by God's design. And so, when you take on further responsibility, you have the sense that, whoa, how do I... How am I going to negotiate these huge responsibilities here? And so I think that's what he's saying. He also would write, I was alone and now there's someone else here. In bed, you wake up in the morning and see a couple of pigtails on the pillow. He's just like, so strange, former monk. Melanchthon, you guys have heard of Melanchthon. Basically Luther's theologian, the guy who systematized Luther's theology. They didn't always see eye to eye. On things, Melanchthon, I, th I think, was closer to Reformed than Luther was in, in many respects. But um, Melanchthon was opposed to the marriage, thinking, why do you think he was opposed to the marriage? Now, Luther's 42, Katerina's 24. There is an age discrepancy here, but that was no big deal back then. Um, I doubt it. I don't think so. I think at this point, they're like, there's no going back. Um, Erasmus may still have wanted it, but not um, Melanchthon. No, he's a, he's a theologian and, and pastor. Yeah. He was opposed to the marriage thinking it would stop the cause of the Reformation. He, he was afraid that this would put 
Luther off his game. And it would stop the Reformation, which he was so committed to. And um, it, Melanchthon was so opposed to it that he didn't, Luther didn't even invite him to the wedding. Uh, and then Luther said this, The greatest gift of grace a man can have is a pious, God-fearing, home-loving wife, whom he can trust with all his goods, his body, and life itself, as well as having her as the mother of his children. That's a great statement. It's a great statement that d blows feminism out of the water, first of all. I mean, look at how biblical his, his rejoicing is there. I mean, we almost read it as 21st century folks as him being all about himself and it being self-centered. But he is the man of his house. He is the head of his home. He, is, he, he wants a helpmate for himself. Right? That is marriage. The man asks the woman... The greatest gift of grace a man can have is a pious, God-fearing, home-loving wife whom he can trust with all his goods, body, and life itself, as well as having her as the mother of his children. Having her as the mother of his children. That's sweet, sweet um, fruit of their union. Um, they had six children together. Hans was born in 1526, Elizabeth in 1527, she died within a few months, Magdalene in 1529, she died in Luther's arms as a 13-year-old daughter. There's Martin born in 1531, Paul in 1533, and Margaret was born in 1534. And so they had a fruitful marriage, they really came to love one another and they know the proof of their love for one another is that they, they ribbed each other pretty relentlessly. Um, Katerina got, a, got away with a lot of, of, she was an oikodespotane, right? She was the ruler of that home. She had grounds upon which she could make uh, money, uh, buy crops and, and wine and whatever, and she, and she ran her household, and she was good for uh, Luther, I mean, Luther, Martin Luther has one of the biggest egos of any man in the history of the world. I mean, right? You've read Luther? Have you read Luther? Have you read Luther taking on Erasmus? Erasmus, the most well-known theologian and, and man of his times, he just tears him a new one and does not hold back in his rhetoric because he's passionate about what he's talking about. He does not want to sway other academics. He wants to sway the people in the pews. And so that's why he uses that language he uses. It's very intentional. But he had a huge ego, okay? He said things that got him in trouble. He said sinful things quite a bit. His tongue got ahead of his heart and his mind at times, right? And, and, and Katerina was married to him. She married that ego, and yet she had a strength that God had provided her through all, all the rigidity that she had lived in in her life. Um, and by God's grace, they were a good couple. They were helpful to one another, right? Luther needed, um, 
I mean, thinking very, um, just a couple of thoughts, thinking very abstractly, don't get offended at me, women, Luther needed to have a household with children and a wife if he was going to lead the Reformation because the Reformation was more, was almost, I mean, that's one of the major principles. You got like sola scriptura, right? You got salvation by grace through faith alone. You got like the household just below that. Uh, doctrine of vocation and work, right? I mean, all those things are very important parts. And, and Luther needed to experience this so that he could write on it uh, from firsthand experience. So that's all I have. Any quick questions? You got 30 seconds for a question. Any? Yeah. Uh, did the nuns see a Bible? Um, they, they did put to memory a lot of Scripture, but their main focus would have been on the, the liturgies of the Catholic Church, the liturgies of the Mass, and all the, the daily, um, daily worship assemblies. They would have had to have those just immediate and memorized. But I do think they gave time to Scripture, but very limited very limited. So perhaps, let's say we had this very bright young girl who happened to be in Congress and we were reading her up about this stuff that's happening. I would think that that might have led her to the Protestantism that she had. Mm hmm. Yeah. Like she was part of the escape group. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Sure. Sure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting stuff, though. Um, Mike, are any of their discs like notes or anything? Not that I've read about. I do not know if what vocations they even went into. I don't know if you know Martin Luther Jr. was a pastor or, or what happened to them. No, I, I would have to read on that. Don't know. Does anybody have any knowledge of the children of Luther? Yeah. Yeah. So. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, history. Thank you for those faithful in the past who recorded things for us so we can know what happened. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we turn to the inspired history of your word. And Lord, that we would be uh, built up and strengthened by your spirit uh, in worship, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.